Hello everyone, it's the wine hour for the finale of season two, the talk show that removes your wine anxiety. One welcome to all of you. As we're closing season two, I am so happy and grateful that the adventure has gone that far. Thank you to the wonderful Wine Dream team, your sharp comments, the great energy and passion you bring. Thank you to the loyal audience. You are the reason why we're doing this, to bring you a different perspective on the world of wine and sometimes beyond the world of wine. And so much has happened since season two has started. Lockdowns has been eased, then erased, putting us back into a change world because people have changed during this time, long months and weeks of seclusion. People are trying to reinvent themselves to make you know, better use of their times on this planet with more meaning and purpose. But at the same time, we have been reminded that the powers that be don't change. On February 24, as we were welcoming the tenor Joseph Kaleha, the Russian tanks were invading the sovereign state of Ukraine. That day, the international order changed for the foreseeable future. How could this even be possible in the 21st century after two world wars and countless conflict? A few days ago, the US Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, abolishing abortion rights, setting the country backwards by decades. Words are missing to describe the impact on women across the country. How could this even be possible as well? And while all this is happening, we enter the first normal-ish kind of summer in a long time, a time to unwind and rest. Americans for 15 days, Europeans for six to eight weeks, gotta choose. A time favorable to take care of yourselves, though this is something that you should do all year round. But sometimes to keep your sanity, it's very important to disconnect from the world. And if you want to change the world, you better be rested. Have a beautiful summer. So here's the menu of today's show. Uh, first and on cork, uh, we'll be talking, so Jamie and Akash will be talking about, is there a revolution happening in Napa and how are the wines evolving? And then in License to Taste, Tanisha will talk about wine tourism and her wine travel award. And finally, in Have a Drink With Me, I'll have the pleasure to welcome our special guest, Ferdinand Meller-Bess. Now, before we start, let me introduce you to today's cast. Coming from Bordeaux, it's a marvelous honor, privilege, and pleasure to welcome Ferdinand Meller-Bess. Hello, everyone. Good evening. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So is it possible that one of your ancestors heard Bach play this? Maybe, yeah. We moved. We moved to uh, before going to uh, to uh, Bordeaux. We were uh, between the 17th to the 19th century in Holland, and before we were in Germany and Switzerland. So maybe we might have met him, and uh, so that's uh, you are completely right. Oh yeah, so good good connection. So coming from our virtual studio. Um, let's start from uh, Europe. Tanisha is on a mission again, and uh, she's going to try to be there. But in case she can't make it, we recorded our segment. So you get everything about her uh, views on wine travel awards. And now again in Europe. Coming from London, the king of wine. <laughs> That's his official name. <laughs> the, lord of, the lord of the wine. The lord of the wine, sorry. <laughs> That's the one, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, usually it's better to be a lord than a king because the king is not very well. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. Mr. Hargo Schwartz. <laughs> so you, you, you get to explain the audience 
where you are exactly because this well, is this is super posh. It is very very weird actually. I am actually in a cigar room of Annabelle's <laughs> private club in London, and the only way I could stay in the cigar room, which is the only place where there's nobody here, um, is by having a cigar. So here I am having a cigar. I'm not sure my wife would be terribly happy with me, but here we go. <laughs> you know, we having a we having a dinner with my brother-in-law here. Uh, at Annabelle's and that was the only place where I could come to do the podcast so but anyway okay. I'm delighted to be here your devotion is so much appreciated never give up <laughs> never give up never give up you know <laughs> now we're crossing all we're going all across so coming from California yes. Jamie Orao <laughs> hello hello very nice to be here and can't believe it's the finale of the second season it Seems goes fast huh Oof, very fast. Very, it does. Fast. It does. It does. Uh, so grab anything that is next to you, a glass of uh, herbal tea, a glass of wine, a glass of water, a cigar, spirits or whatever it is. It toasts to all of you. And uh, let's hope uh, you'll enjoy the show. And uh, here we go. Cheers. Today in Cork, we're going to be talking about is there a revolution happening in Napa and how are the wines are evolving. There's a bit of a backstory on this, and I'll let Akosh talk about this in a second. But first, I'm going to run a quick poll just to get your thoughts on the question. And uh, we'll look at the answers afterwards. And uh, Akosh, something happened a few days ago. You were in the new world, which is kind of changing. Is that the case? Well, I mean, listen, I don't say that, um, you know, I am the judge of all this, but I have to say that in a certain way, um, I came away after one week in Napa uh, with uh, a couple of extraordinary experiences. The number one has had to be, as I met Jamie in person, which was <laughs> obviously the highlight of the entire stay. Otherwise, you know, honestly... Why would I have gone there, you know? And now <laughs> uh-huh. we have a, we're officially going to import our wines in the United Kingdom. So I'm really happy with uh, that. This is great. Yeah. No, but, I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen a PO yet, but yes. Come on, <laughs> come on, woman. Wait, wait, wait. It's going to come. Come on. Oh, no, you please. have time to go to dinner at Annabelle's, yes. but not time uh, to send me a PO. I mean, well, I got to put my wife in front of you. I'm sorry. There are priorities. <laughs> That's life, fair. You know? That's fair. Michelle works, comes first. But, but the, good news, exactly. the good news is that there was, because we have a lot of uh, listeners from the UK, and now they're going to be able to put a bottle on the name. Yes, <laughs> because they it's will. Gonna be they available. Will. They're going to be able to uh, it, it will be available. So that's great. But, um, but I think what is interesting is that um, uh, I, I actually, I had a very kind of uh, skewed view of uh, the Napa Valley wines in general. And uh, Jamie had the kindness to send me some samples before, which kind of like opened my my you know, my eyes to a fact that, you know, there is a change that is happening. And then when I spent a week going around meet, you know, going to Harlan Estate, going, uh, you know, to Spotswood and, uh, and others uh, and Duck Horn, because we import Duck Horn in the, uh, in the UK. So all day portfolio uh, wines, which I knew already, and they were really not down that alley, but the really top, top end of Napa Valley has always been about jamminess, 
really alcoholic, very powerful wines, uh, which you like or you don't, it doesn't matter, it's your taste. But uh, I have to say that uh, having gone to Holland Estate uh, really opened my eyes because what happened was that in 2017, the fires, which were obviously roaring down everybody's vineyards and, and neighborhoods, uh, and Jamie is probably the best place to actually uh, you know, attest to that, is that um, uh, Holland decided to harvest like two, three weeks earlier than they did because they didn't want to lose the fruit that they had hanging there. And then a year later, they tried the wine and they said, holy mackerel, this is actually wow. And then I tried 2018 and 17 side by side at Harlem Estate. And I said, wow, this is really trying to be first growth Bordeaux. And I know Palmer Ferdinand would say is only third growth, but you know, it's by accident. It's actually a first growth Bordeaux. But uh, you know, and 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 I tried Jamie's wines afterwards, and Jamie has nothing to hide with you know, Trois Noir, they are the same style, elegance, finesse, and so on and so on. And that's why like I, Jamie? I believe. Jamie is already <laughs> elegant and she's refined already, so don't worry about it. Actually, why she's go putting that far. up? You know, why, why, why she's putting up Patience. with me? That's a different yes. question. Patience, but. absolutely. But the, the thing is really that I think there is a change in the taste of the consumer uh, that has I didn't think that Napa is actually going to embrace because I said to myself, you know, the American market is so big that they're going to absorb all the wines. It doesn't matter how jammy, how whatever it is. And, you know, the Parker ratings are so high, but Parker ratings are actually disappearing. It's not Parker anymore. It's different oh. people. And there's oh, but this a change is the thing, of though. taste. Yeah, but this is the thing, Akash. I think the whole point is that it's not, it's not one thing, right? It's not one thing that's changing an entire industry. I think um, obviously with social media and, and the internet, um, the the wine critic and the role of the wine critic has completely altered and we've talked about that before on this platform um i think people's tastes the younger generation's tastes are changing um but honestly the thing that i really see a lot of here in napa valley and i think the harlan story is a great example is um you know for a lot of years we spent a lot of time trying to convince everyone and kind of trying to convince ourselves too that we really could make world-class wine in Napa Valley. And I think there wasn't the, um, the, the innate confidence in that that um, would allow us to have a little bit more hands-off winemaking style. So I think there was a lot of things done to the grapes, right? We're going to hang it longer. We're going to oak it more. We're going to, to, to manipulate things because deep down, we're not entirely convinced that were really good enough. And I think, um, you know, with this more recent um, generation kind of coming into power um, in a lot of the vineyards and the wineries, I think we have a lot more confidence. We know we can make beautiful wines and we just don't have to do all those things. Um, and so it's a kind of a nice um, dovetail with consumer attitudes, with um, the difference in the influence of critics and things like that. Um, then I think it's, it's, I love it personally, because I think those wines are, are amazing. And, you know, the, it's very unfortunate. There's no very good English translation for the French word digest, but I think it's a really great way to describe a wine 
um, something that just feels good in your body um, that actually, you know, is, is compatible <laughs> with, and, and, okay. and isn't trying to, and, you know, and, and it's compatible with food, isn't trying to overpower it, isn't trying to be too much. Um, so, so I have a yeah. question. I have a, I have a question for you, Jamie. So, okay. So mm-hmm. that, that is, that is all good what you say, but okay. I, you know, I'm a controversial little guy here. So I went to Spotswood and Spotswood produced in the last 10 years or eight years, like four or five hundred point wines and Spotswood, Spotswood is actually nothing else but finesse and elegance. Yep. So no, what I'm trying to say is that. But there how come they got a hundred points? How come they got a hundred points? You know, I mean, I'm being controversial, but why did they get a hundred points? I tried Spotswood and I said, oh my God, these are beautiful wines. Because a hundred points really? today is not what a hundred points was 10 years ago. That's why. And, and 10 years ago, Spotswood was not getting a hundred points. Because of the Kathy criteria? Corazon was not getting a hundred points. Is it because, because the of criteria taste? was very different. Because now, I'm not going to say that it's because they're run by women, but... No. Um, these are these two wineries, Spotswood and Corazon, who are the examples I always point to of, of people who are making the wine they wanted to make, who had that confidence, no matter what anyone else said. And thank God for it, because they went through a lot of years where they were very unfashionable. Um, I mean, Spotswood always had a really wonderful following, but Corazon, good Lord, the number of people who told her, like, your wine's too thin, it's really, it doesn't have enough to it. You need to do this. You need to do that. And she said, you know what? I'm making the wine I want to make. I mean, I'm making the wine this vineyard makes. And if you don't like it, that's sad. But, and now of course she's the sommelier's darling and everybody is, it's, you know, putting those wines in the, in the position that they deserve of respect and, and admiration. Um, couple of things. But, so, yeah. So, 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 so here we go. Before, okay. before we, before we go, uh, I'm just going to show the polls uh, so that we, jump on and we continue on this and for those interested in Spotswood uh, Beth Novak Milliken was actually started season two uh, she was a fantastic guest at the beginning yeah. so the two questions is have you noticed an evolution in Napa wines most of the people know 67% uh, are you more inclined to drink Napa wines nowadays yes uh, 67% and so the question I would like to ask to, to, to Ferdinand is that how is Bordeaux looking at Napa is it, okay, since, since the judgment of Paris, okay, you shoot some stuff and, you know, you can do your stuff in your place, whatever, but don't come around us too much? Or is there an interest of what is happening in the way they're doing their wines? Uh, how is that relationship, basically? How does it exist <laughs> without well, being too controversial? <laughs> no, there are, there are few answers. First, uh, I think there is a lot of respect on the producer of Napa wines from Bordeaux since the beginning. And I think uh, Napa has made amazing wine uh, since the beginning. I remember tasting some old stag slips uh, from the 70s, which were marvelous. So no doubt that there is a, an immense terroir in, uh, in Napa uh, that, is, uh, that is existing. Uh, the, the second point is about uh, how Bordeaux is looking at Napa. You have to keep in mind that uh, since the, 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 I think it's the 80s, Bordeaux is in Napa with the Rothschild and Opus One, this connection between the, 
the Mondavi and the Rothschild and uh, this creation of this uh, winery. And uh, it has been distributed by the uh, wine merchant of Bordeaux uh, for the entire world at the exception of the US uh, market. So uh, the connection with Napa in terms of selling is already there since uh, a lot of times. I think we started in the 90s. And more and more uh, estates are uh, connected uh, with Bordeaux in Napa uh, in various uh, uh, in various ways. Uh, you have a lot of Bordelais who are buying estates in uh, in uh, in Napa. Uh, you have uh, Alfred Teston who, uh, from Chateau Pontecané. Uh, if you extend Napa and you put also no Sonoma, you have the Lurton uh, family uh, with Gonzague Lurton and his wife uh, who purchased uh, Akaibo, cre created Akaibo. Uh, you have but the, the Catiard family. And the Catiard family, exactly. And you also have uh, wineries which are coming to Bordeaux. You have, uh, for example, the last one, Joseph Hertz, uh, is partially distributed by, uh, by the Place de Bordeaux uh, for the world. So we have an immense respect of uh, Napa wines uh, and mostly Northern Californian wine uh, in Bordeaux. Yeah, and I would just add to that a couple of things. One, um, the huge um, earth-shattering bombshell of news we got yesterday that Joseph Phelps was just sold to LVMH. Yes. Which is a little terrifying. That's, that's massive. Um, that's massive, really. Honestly, I didn't expect that to happen. I, no, neither did I. Neither did I. I mean, um, Diamond Creek sold for Rodeo, yeah. right? So that's already, you know, one of those things and you're like, wow, you know? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Whew, you know, um, and, I, and I forgot, the, sorry, uh, Jamie, I forgot to talk about uh, Christian Moix also created Dominus. Mm. Yes, of course. Very yeah, important, of course, yeah. sorry. Yep, absolutely. Um, but um, I also have been very interested to see just in the last few months, um, that there has been an, a, a huge amount of interest um, from the Place de Bordeaux in Napa. I mean, I have seen every single négociant, I have seen multiple brokers, and they are all targeting Napa Valley wineries to try and grab distribution of those wines internationally. And that is very new. I mean, yes, there was always the Opus connection, um, and Harlan was um, distributing a little bit um, via the Place as well. But really, um, the the, the focus and the energy of the Place coming to Napa and, and aggressively looking for, for wineries to, to partner with has been a very, very new thing. So I think that um, it's, uh, it's definitely very interesting, for sure. And we'll see where it goes. Is it because the wines have evolved in a certain way or because they're still looking for places where they can find growth from? A little bit of both, I think. I think the wines have evolved for sure. I think that, um, you know, uh, associations like the Napa Valley Vintners have done a great job building the brand of Napa internationally so that it's actually a much easier sell today than it was 20 years ago in places like Hong Kong or Sweden or whatever. Um, and also, I think the Place is looking around and saying, you know, Bordeaux's finite. We need to have other things in our portfolio and you know there's a younger generation coming into a lot of the negotiations and, and and broker houses as well so i think you know 
A lot of those people have traveled. A lot of them have have experienced the industry and wines around the world. Um, and I think with the opening up of those horizons, um, you they're able to see opportunities and potential where perhaps um, their predecessors were not able to. Uh, it's a very uh, interesting point that you're pointing out. Um, the Place de Bordeaux is more and more uh, uh, involved in uh, international wine. I mean, we are involved with uh, Italian wine, involved with uh, Rhone wine, uh, a little bit of Burgundy and everything. And it's uh, um, a comeback from the past. If I look at the, when I was looking at our uh, archives uh, in my family, um, um, my great grandfather was, when he was going to the US or any country around the world, he was uh, selling his Bordeaux wine for sure, but he was also having wine from Burgundy, wine from Champagne, wine from the Rhone Valley. Uh, wine from everywhere because the cost of traveling was very important. So he was bringing to the to the, to, to, to the importers a huge amount of wine. So it's just the Place de Bordeaux is coming back to what it used to be, what it used to do in the uh, early 20th century. That's interesting. And the fact that they're looking at Napa, is it because also it's a safe place because they know there's quality, they know there's dependability, there's reliability, mm. uh, they've been around for a long time, there's a brand name around it. And so it's more of a safer bet if you want to, to, to get a wine in certain quantities as well in terms of quality and to distribute these. I think that Bordeaux in itself is going to embrace uh, wines that are I'm going to be nasty to say that, but in, a, in when it comes to Cabernet Sauvignon and Sauvignon Blanc based, uh, Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc based wines, which are going to be very similar to the ones that they sell themselves, and uh, you know, it of course it's it, it's driven by, uh, by 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 ratings, but at the end of the day, I think the Bordelais themselves as well. At the end of the day, no matter the negotiations being, you know, saying okay, we're going to sell wine uh, with ratings, but they also need to like the wine. And I think that the Bordelais themselves like the wine more. Yeah, but I also think that they're very savvy, the Bordelais, and I think they have seen that Americans, particularly in Napa Valley, are quite parochial in a lot of ways in terms of their sales. Um, and there's an enormous amount of upside in international markets because the vast majority of American wineries and Napa Valley wineries have very little, if any, international distribution. So... It is a very easy place to add value uh, yeah. because basically as long as the volume is there, the winery isn't giving up anything because they're not, you know, giving up any relationships that they already have. They're just expanding into a place where they really don't have a lot of knowledge or experience. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think having lived abroad for 24 years, I'm very much the exception rather than the rule. I understand. I've been to all of these different markets. A, a, a lot of American and Napa wineries have never been to, you know, see the monopolies in Scandinavia or um, know the difference between the Hong Kong market and the Chinese market and things like that. Um, so I, I think it's just uh, a, quite a savvy move, in fact, on the part of, of the Bordelais. 
Well, in general, in general, I think it's it it, it is go, it, it tells you the fact that there is a change where uh, the the top wineries actually uh, who used who can actually sell twice or three times the amount of wine they produce on the American market at significantly higher prices than they would sell if they weren't abroad. But they realized that the only way to build an international brand is by actually allowing the wines to be sold in markets, in top restaurants, in top retailers, because yes, it's true that they still sell 90% of the wines. Because if you look at, if I spoke to speak to Holland, Holland sells what, 80% maybe plus of the wines in the, in the US uh, and they actually don't need anyone else. They really generally don't need anyone else, but they know that they will not become a, a first growth Bordeaux recognized brand unless they go around the world and sell their wines. And I think that the Place de Bordeaux is an amazing way of selling their wines and attaining that result. I mean, Ferdinand might contradict me, but that's what I believe it is. Oh, I fully agree. I fully agree. And that's probably uh, the, the, the difficulty we had in the past, we had in the past is uh, to get people understand the system of the Plaza Bordeaux, which is very complex and uh, a little bit weird. It's very old school uh, and we are doing it since the 17th century and you are wondering how it's still uh, efficient as it is today. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, the, the people, if you look at all these famous producers, take the uh, Antinori family. Why did they came to, uh, to Bordeaux to uh, get the Place de Bordeaux to distribute their Solaya? They, they have their own uh, distribution system worldwide. They don't need the Place de Bordeaux, but they know that the Place de Bordeaux uh, can uh, touch every step of the of the industry uh, in in a much better way than having your exclusive importers in a in a specific country and uh, you have you have uh, let's say uh, 15 negotiants these 15 negotiants have a minimum of uh, five sales people so you multiply uh, 15 by 5 and you which winery in the world can afford to have this amount of sales force for the entire world? That's, and that's the beauty of Bordeaux. And also what is interesting, in my opinion, is very interesting, is that at the same time, you have, uh, you have people who are actually uh, telling you when, I'm I, I giving you an example of Harlan. Harlan is super, super, you know, uh, strict about the distribution network. Right. I don't know if Harlan, probably Harlan doesn't sell through the Place de Bordeaux, but, you know, they don't want to have a parallel market. So they tell you, I give you distribution rights for this country, but I'm not going to, I don't want you to sell in other countries, which is the same with the Romani Conti works, right? The Romani Conti works exactly the same way. But, you know, uh, I think there are certain estates for whom the, the constraints are not as big as it is today uh, for uh, certain, for, for other estates, you know, and, and other estates will say, oh, we don't care, we're gonna sell it to you. But in, in from uh, an international brand perspective, if you have an international brand from Napa, they will go through the Place de Bordeaux. But if you are a niche producer, you will still probably stick with your own distribution network and having one distributor per country, you know? I mean, that's, so, that, that's what I see. So the transformation is taking place not only on the quality side, but also on the way the business is being done. 
Definitely. And uh, as you were as you were mentioning LVMH buying uh, Joseph Phelps, yeah. is there why would they do this? Is it is it is it the start of consolidation and you have to be big marketing wise, distribution wise to actually make it, and the smaller players will have bigger <clears throat> and bigger problems? No, no, no. No, I, I mean I, I think it's it's a lot of things. Um, there's even for someone as successful as Phelps and they're wildly successful and have, um, you know, an incredible reputation and beautiful wines and a great following. Um, there've been a lot of really tough years out here uh, in the last few years. And I think 2020, um, a lot of people don't have wine to sell and that's leaves a very big hole um, for an industry that operates on a very fine margin. Um, I'm not saying that's why, but I know that a lot of, there've been a lot of issues of consolidation and things being bought just because people are tired. People, um, you know, aren't, and, and you're navigating second and third generation shifts. And those are always really tricky. I think, you know, once you get to a point where you're at your fourth generation, um, fifth generation and forward, uh, it becomes more of a, um, less of a, a, a discussion and, and, or a questioning and more of a, a quid pro quo um, in a lot of ways. But I think, you know, the second and third generation shifts are always very tricky to navigate. And I, a lot of the wineries that we're seeing being sold at the moment um, and changing hands are definitely having those sorts of issues. Okay, Ferdinand, how do you read this, uh, this purchase? We had the same thing in, uh, in Bordeaux. You know, the, my grandfather always uh, teach me the first generation builds, the second generation consolidates what has been built, and the third generation is selling. <laughs> yeah. Cashing yeah. yeah. in. <laughs> so it's all around the world the same. Thank you guys But for the investment. <laughs> <laughs> no question about it. And then at the end of the day, you know, also I think that the, um, and I'm going to be very mean about it, but, you know, uh, in Burgundy, the big brands, they started buying up stuff. And uh, now there's a new law that uh, came into place where you just cannot walk in and buy any estate like that. And in Napa, it's still not the case. You can go and buy a wonderful estate uh, like Rodrigo Diamond Creek, and uh, you know. But the question, my my, my question is, uh, is really a different one, which is kind of a mean one, is that you know Diamond Creek was sold at whatever two hundred two hundred fifty dollars. Now it's five hundred. So because Rodrigo bought it, all of a all of a sudden the price goes up like one and a half to two times. And that's the same thing, exactly what happened, you know, when Claude de Lombre was bought. It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And you see that. Yeah, the it's price the same thing that happened jumps with up. Yeah. Same Orajo, thing that happened Orajo, Orajo, Orajo. Orajo. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, but yeah. do you know, you know, I mean, I'm sure the market is still there, but how long will the market be there? I know I'm, you know, you know me, I always ask the nasty question. No. No, it's, it's not a nasty question. I think it's a very valid question. I mean, I understand when you buy a property, that's the good moment to make any big changes that you're going to make because you're kind of ripping off the Band-Aid. Um, but, you know, the, the constant um, sort of exponential growth of pricing is not sustainable. It's just not. And, and so there's going to be consumer, corrections. Until the consumer says no. 
because well, on, there will be correction yeah. until until the consumer says no. But when this is going to happen at the moment, I don't know. You know, you I have, have to no ask clue. consumers. <laughs> yeah, well, because they still, they, they still pay the prices. You know, yeah, that's zero point one percent can afford it. And this is what is enough for these people in terms of sales and volume. Then they, they shouldn't have a problem. But if all of them are trying to attract the zero point one percent. There's going to be an issue at one point. Yeah, but nobody can extract 0.1%. Not, not everybody. Yeah. There has to be a really, really slim number of producers who can do it. But anyway, to come back to it, I believe that Napa is going through a refreshing, literally palette-wise, consumer-wise, refreshing revolution, where the fresher yeah. wines, lower alcohol wines, earlier harvest, and better quality wines. I believe, I strongly believe that this is what's going on in Napa. Jamie, okay. you live there. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I agree, a hundred percent. And Tonwa is the is the perfect expression of that. Is the, is the icon <laughs> of that movement? No, um, no. We got two seasons, and we finally agree. Akko. Agree. Oh, finally! Finally! Oh, finally! Oh, finally. Yeah, great. You had to wait <laughs> for the finale. Obviously, you had to wait <laughs> yeah. for the finale for that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, before we before we close, uh, there's something Akosh you wanted to pay tribute there's yes. a person that is very dear yes. to you and yes. i didn't forget yes. that and yeah, thank you thank you so anyway it's not it's not napa valley at all but it's J josh jensen who passed away unfortunately uh, about two and a half weeks ago and uh he was the as Aubert de Villene would say call him the monsieur pinot noir des états unis so he was the man who actually uh put uh, uh i would say Pinot Noir in on the United States map in a way that no one else have ever done it before, and uh, I just would like to pay tribute to him because this is a man who in 1973 bought a ginormous, I don't know, six million ton of uh, you know of limestone hill. And, uh, and put vineyards in there that nobody ever believed that actually can be done and he's done it and he produced the wine that today will stand up to any Pinot Noirs in the world. And uh, anyway, I just would like to say that if you ever come across a bottle of Calera, drink it. That's all okay. I have to say. So what is your thumbs Good up? Advice. Well, my thumbs up. My thumbs up is my daughter got an A, A star, A star in her A levels. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to do with wine. Okay, Nothing great. To do with wine. That's it's okay. great, you know. Okay. <laughs> Jamie, thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, well, thumbs down is pretty obvious. Um, yeah. The United States deciding that they're going to take millions of steps backwards and um, not support bodily autonomy for all people. Um, that's just insane. Um, and thumbs up uh, would be the fact that we're finally going to be in the UK. So I'll have a reason to come back to London. Yay! Okay. Yes. And uh, just a thought about uh, Ray. Uh, Ray had an emergency at work, something he couldn't escape. And this is why he's super sad not to be able to join us today. But he sent his regards, his thoughts, <laughs> and we're thinking about him a lot. Hi, Ray. We will punish and, him uh, later. So Absolutely, no question. We will see you all uh, end of September for uh, season three. In the meantime, uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy your vacation and off time or whatever you're going to be doing in, in, in that period of time. And now we're on to a license to take with Tanisha Townsend. 
Tanisha is going to be talking to us about wine travel uh, and uh, also her wine travel award more specifically. Uh, so she had an engagement she couldn't get out of, but she did record her segment and uh, here she is. Hello and good to be with you all for another episode of the Wine Hour. What I want to talk to you about tonight is wine tourism. And I know you all are familiar with tourism. I work in tourism. Tourists are back in France, okay? They are all over the place. They're at Versailles. They're at the Louvre. They're at the Eiffel Tower. They are doing all of the things, going all of the places, all the while holding up traffic on the metro, confused, lost for directions, but no problem. It's fine. It, that was me at one point when I used to visit here. And even when I first moved here, that was me. But wine tourism. Wine tourism, by definition, is a, a type of food tourism aimed at getting to know and appreciate the universe of wine. There are routes and tours focused on a single objective, getting to know regions dedicated to wine production and then also taste those wines. I love working in wine tourism and also being a wine tourist because... It allows me to get a true immersion into history, into flavors, into aroma. Wine touches all of those things. It's culture, it's food, it's art, it's war, it's it's all of the things. So when you think wine tourism, you think visits to wineries, wine tastings, participating in harvest, like embarking on a full journey through the course of wine. So tourists can participate in all these different kind of things. And the cool thing, you don't have to be an expert. No one is expecting you to be an expert. Just bring your curiosity about the traditions, the culture, and be respectful. Okay? That's one thing. Be respectful of the culture. If it's different than yours, if the customs and things like that are different than yours, that's fine. But a few different types of wine tourism activities or options. You have guided tours where you can go through a winery or go through a cellar and do that kind of thing. You have wine museums. I was at the Cité du Vin in Bordeaux. That place is, I mean, I could spend days in there. I almost wanted them to lock me in. Like that's the kind of night at the museum that I want to be a part of, okay? Then there are immersive experiences where you could work a harvest or has anyone ever crushed grapes with their feet? I did that in Portugal. It's kind of cool. After I got over the whole foot grape wine, I'm going to drink it later thing, it was it was fine. I enjoyed it. Then, of course, tasting sessions. Who doesn't like to taste? And then festivals, again in Bordeaux. I started at the Cité du Vin, and I was in town for the weekend for the Bordeaux Fête Le Vin wine festival. So just all the different Bordeaux that I can taste from Saint-Emilion to Fransac to Medoc, uh, Bordeaux, Bordeaux Superior. The options were endless. It is a great way to try a lot of different things while having a good time with friends. There's music. There's food. You can do all of these things and then still learn and, um, yeah, still learn about the region. Workshops. You can take specific workshops on certain aspects of wine. And then there are gastronomic experiences. With the gastronomic experience, this is a cooking class. This is a picnic. This is a tasting menu pairing situation. I've done all of them and I can't say enough about gastronomic experiences. Now, if you're looking to be a wine tourist and you're thinking like, well, what region or where should I go? Well, clearly you should start with France first. 
then Italy's cool, Portugal, Chile, South Africa. These are things to do and places that you can travel. The reason I wanted to talk about wine tourism or the reason I was told to talk about wine tourism is I recently won an award for um, a unique route. It's a wine travel award sponsored by um, Drinks Plus and uh, it's a unique travel ride in the wine tourism space and I was awarded this because of the work that I've done with my podcast Wine School Dropout and talking about tourism travel to wine regions and not just talking about the grapes themselves the flavor and things like that but food pairings talking about the culture what kind of music do they listen to what kind of things do they do if they aren't making wine things like that and uh, they said and i quote her outstanding storytelling made us feel like we were there with her so there is that. So I am very excited to have won that award. And if you haven't seen it, I am smiling with like all of my teeth on my latest Instagram photo. So you can take a look there at Girl Meets Girl. Okay, so that was the first part where Tanisha talks about it. It's very nice to see that uh, she, she won that award. She's a wonderful uh, storyteller uh, as well. Now, uh, the second part that she usually does is the uh, the wine minute, where she gives her opinion on something very personal. So here it is. All right, and now for my wine minute, timer is set and go. Since we're in the summertime and we're thinking of holidays, where to go and what to do, I wanna to talk to you all about bucket lists. Do you all have a bucket list? Do you know what a bucket list is? The proper definition of bucket list, if you've never heard of the term, is a number of, number of experiences or achievements that a person hopes to have or accomplish in their lifetime. People have various lists before they turn 40 or 50, ultimate vacations, places to go, extreme sports. There are many ways this list can look. I never put the stress on myself for a life goal one or a career one because sometimes that stuff just isn't dependent on me, but I do have a travel one and um, centered around wine travel regions experiences. One thing I do wanna do, I wanna host a wine tasting on a boat. I know that sounds small and not that hard to do, but like a whole cruise ship standing in front of a crowd, kind of doing what I'm doing here now with you all. Not sure how to go about it, so just putting it out in the atmosphere, um, calling on that. And then uh, top of my travel dream list is a trip to South Africa. And I'm keep going because I'm not finished yet. This dream is actually coming true. I'm headed to South Africa, Stellenbosch, next week. If you have something on your bucket list or something travel on your bucket list, you let me know. Put it in the chat here. Leave it in the comments for the podcast. Or hit me up on social media, Girl Meets Glass. All right? That was Tanisha Townsend. So we'll see her again also at the end of uh, September for the beginning of season Three. Now we're on to last but not least to have a drink with me with our special guest. Ferdinand Melorbes, what a marvelous pleasure to welcome you to the wine hour. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> When we were preparing uh, for the show, we had a few conversations, and there was one thing that struck me was the the difficulty between tradition and modernity, because Chateau Palmer is is, and we'll talk about Sobovie afterwards about the the, the business and negotiation aspect, which is also extremely interesting and important. But when we look at when we look at Chateau Palmer, there is that issue of 
you know, tradition, things that you take forward with you, with the history that was there with, with, with the Chateau. And looking at the things that are happening nowadays, the way the business has evolved, potentially the taste that have evolved, the consumers that have evolved, how can you balance these two things? Tradition and modernity. Um, the, we, um, so Palmer has been in my family since uh, something like a little bit less than 100 years. We purchased the estate in 1937. Uh, I'm the fourth generation, uh, you know, um, at the estate. And um, my generation as a, as a challenge is to uh, uh, increase the quality of the, uh, of the estate, of the wine, but also uh, create new things, create some excitement to, uh, to uh, get the younger generation. And when you have an estate like uh, like Chateau Palmer, uh, the issue is to respect the past uh, with a fresh of you. Uh, and Thomas Duroux is our general manager, uh, always has great ideas. Uh, and since he's been there, we, we really increased the, uh, this uh, way of, uh, of thinking. And we've done we've done a few things. The first the first one was. Uh, Thomas had a, a tasting in, in the US uh, in uh, the early uh, 21st century mm -hmm. uh, about uh, an old Palmer which was Hermitage, which is uh, something that not a lot of people uh, know, but uh, in the old days in Bordeaux, we were producing wine uh, and the quality from one vintage to the other was, uh, could have been like pretty big. Uh, so just to, to, to increase the potential of aging of this uh, of this one we're going to the Rhone Valley and we were like adding you know stronger wines to uh, give some body to, to the wine and we were calling them the Lafitte Hermitage, the Palmer Hermitage and so on and uh, so uh, Thomas went uh, went to the Rhone Valley purchased uh, to an unknown uh, producer, uh, he's the only one to know, even the uh, shareholders. Uh, me, we don't know uh, who is the producer, and can uh, change from one vintage to the other. I started to, to this little project uh, with, uh, you know, uh, a few thousand bottles and uh, with, uh, with not some firm idea that we will continue that. So we started in 2004 and uh, we didn't do any uh, in uh, 05. We did one in 06, in 07 and so on. And now we uh, we have quite a success, um, but it's a, it's a tiny production uh, dedicated to uh, some of the, of the wine lovers uh, and the consumption at the, uh, at the estate. Yeah, and I suppose the, 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 the consumers are the same ones they are looking for it every time and asking you are you going to do some of these this year again exactly and they are willing to uh, to uh, to uh, to get every vintage uh, <laughs> even the and um, and at some point i remember that was in i think 2009, Thomas said we didn't produce uh, since a few years. We need to do a Palmer Amitage or we, the project is going to die. So we did some Palmer Amitage in 2010, if I remember well, which is a marvelous vintage in, uh, in Bordeaux. So 
it's uh, to keep the, the project alive. Um, after we had some land in uh, in a non-classified uh, appellation in Bordeaux, and uh, exactly like uh, for the Palmer Hermitage for the early uh, 20th century, uh, the producer in Bordeaux in the, uh, the late 19th century and early 20th century, they were in a, most of the estate producing white wine, which since we own the estate, I don't think we ever produced white wine. And we had this uh, piece of land we, we didn't use. And, uh, we could have planted, you know, Sauvignon, Sauvignon uh, grapes, which 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 could have been like uh, all the other uh, producer in Bordeaux, and also Thomas there had a great idea to introduce something unknown, something forgotten, or something which is quite successful in other region, and we planted a few uh, few grapes uh, there, and uh, some were. Uh, very interesting, uh, like the Merlot Blanc uh, or the Lozé, and some were like uh, uh, completely uninteresting, so we didn't use them. And so he created this uh, this project of uh, uh, dry white uh, at Palmer, which was at the beginning uh, dedicated to the family, so only the shareholder had an allocation. And after we uh, we started to serve it at the at the estate to the people who were visiting the estates. And little by little, the market was looking for some, so we, we can find some in the some restaurant around the world. And all this idea is you try to bring in something new at the estate, but with a lot of respect to the past, uh, because you have the star is not you, the star is the wine, and the star is the estate. And that's something which is very important, I think, to produce amazing wine is to keep the wine and the estate as the star and not the people. Yeah, what I was also very interested in is to see that relationship to, to art and photography in particular. Why is that connection so strong and what does it represent to be to be linking Chateau Palmer with, with photography and, and art? Arts and music, I mean, painting and music, all the arts have been very much linked with, uh, with wine because uh, wine is about sharing and art and music is about uh, sharing too. So, uh, one of your uh, visitors from the this season, I think Philippe de Lursalus, mm -hmm. his father, when he was at Ikem, was uh, organizing the the May Musical, the musical May uh, in uh, in Bordeaux, with uh, some concert in, in a few estates. And one the, the, the main show was at Chateau d'Ikem. So it's been something that we have done since a long time uh, in Bordeaux. We tended to forget it in the late 90s, early 2000. And uh, again, Thomas, uh, uh, our general manager, is, uh, is crazy about, uh, about jazz and everything. And when you launch something, you have to embrace it pretty strongly. And so Thomas decided every year 
to uh, bring in uh, a jazz player or jazz group at Chateau Palmer to create uh, a music dedicated to the new vintage. So it's usually, uh, it is usually uh, in, uh, if I'm not wrong, March or April. Uh, the, this uh, jazz player is uh, coming to the estate for a week. Uh, he is visiting, uh, you know, uh, he's visiting the vineyards, the winery, and everything for a week with Thomas. And after a week, uh, there is a concert in the cellars uh, with a group of people uh, with this new music created by this uh, musician. We started to, we didn't have any during the, 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 the COVID, but uh, yeah. we had a few. I have a, a few a CD at home uh, <laughs> with all the, all the, all the vintages. Uh, to be honest with you, some of them, I love them. Some of them, I think I need to learn more about uh, jazz you, music. You're talking about the music, huh? Right. <laughs> some are a little bit weird for me. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, and the uh, and the last thing is uh, uh, we wanted also to to bring in artists uh, to to Palmer, um, so you can bring uh, painters, you can bring photographers, and we saw that we should bring something uh, you know consistent in terms of style. So we decided uh, first to bring in uh, photographers, uh, independent photographers. And since uh, months now, we uh, have this uh, connection with the, the Leica uh, brand. And uh, we have one uh, photographer uh, at the estate for a year with, uh, one who is doing everything at the estate. And there is an exposition and everything. So it's okay, brand new. It's uh, months old. So we will see how uh, interesting it is. In your playlist, you've chosen uh, Queen Bohemian Rhapsody. Why, why did you choose that song? Because you asked me to choose a few uh, songs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it, it's one of the music that Queen produced, which is completely amazing. I think it's you. I selected also uh, Maria Callas, which is uh, completely different. But the, you have this kind of opera style in the Bohemian Rhapsody, which is completely amazing, and uh, it's uh, all you can get from Queen. Is in this music. You have the, the guitar solo. You have the, the every, you have everything, everything yes. that Queen can create, and that's why I love this song. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite bands, definitely, and and the biggest regret of my life in terms of music. I I, I missed their concert in 1984, but that's that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was not born for, I don't remember uh, from what year is Bohemian Rhapsody, but uh, I think I was not born. Yeah, it's uh, that period of, of the late 70s, early 80s for, for hard rock, uh, mm. Queen, ACDC, um, Kiss, Def Leppard, all these, all these guys, Scorpions, the old things. Well, uh, there, were, there was really that, 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 that movement back then in terms of music. There was so much creation, and and Freddie Mercury was was a, a person apart completely, uh, in terms of his voice, uh, what he did with Montserrat Caballé afterwards, and 
his his operatic voice, the the compositions, right. everything was just was just perfect. Right, completely. And that was uh, he, re he really created the style. Completely, completely, and and I can see the relation between between art, music, and 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 wine. To come back to 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 the wine part, because it's an expression of what you are what you're doing. And I was very much interested in when you were talking about the, the different things you were creating, because musicians have twelve notes; they're all the same. They kind of you know work with these things to create something out of it. You work with nature in terms of you know the grapes that you have, but there's a bit more factors in play with the weather and everything like that. But it's a question of creation as well. And it's it's the way you want it to taste like or feel like or be like. And it's actually absolutely fascinating to be to be able to to have that opportunity to work in that world. Yes. The difference with um, with a music group like uh, Queen, they can do their own style. They can choose. Uh, a wine producer can choose his, its own style because he's the one who is, uh, you know, harvesting and blending and everything. But at the end, you have two choices as a producer. Or you tend to show how you are and what style of wine you like, or you tend to get an expression of the terroir where you are. Mm -hmm. And really the essence in my philosophy and my family philosophy has always been you are in a terroir, you are in a land, get the, the best expression of what you have in this land. And don't try to be fashion at some point because these guys say you need over-extracted, late harvest wine. Try to make what is the best from your soil. And I think that's probably what uh, makes our wine, uh, not Palmer, but all the amazing wine from the world is you pass the mud. You have a style and the style is intemporal, uh, I don't know. Mm. And, and really that's- Atemporal, yes. Intemporal. And it's exactly that. One needs to be intemporal to pass generation from one generation. Romane Conti, Iken, all these legends in the wine have been like that, in my opinion. The, to, to, to segue on, the, on, on your work as a négociant, so you're the Secretary General of uh, Sobovi, which is a négociant on the place of, of Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you see an evolution in terms of the way the wines have been made and sold through the years? Because you were saying now that, you know, if, if you can extract what the terroir is about and showcase what this is, and you, know, you have your own being and your own you know, idiosyncrasies, you are like that and not try to please people because, you know, as we were saying of the fads, have you seen an evolution in the business in terms of the wines that are being sold, getting towards that philosophy of, of work mm -hmm. more and more? Um, so I started my career in, uh, in the early 2000. I started in 2001. Uh, it's really easy to remember. I started uh, really in 2001, September 2001 in, uh, in New York. 
So you can, uh, I was supposed yeah. to arrive on the 12th of September 2001. Uh, but I've been in the uh, industry through my family uh, since a uh, while. That the interesting point is that uh, that's, uh, today is my grandfather's uh, birthday. Uh, oh. he, he would have been uh, 121 years old. <laughs> um, respectable age. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I started in the business, that was the, uh, the, the, the top of the uh, Parker influence in Bordeaux. Uh, and I will pay a tribute to Robert Parker because he brought Bordeaux, he, he forced Bordeaux to create as much as great wine as possible. So he pushed us to improve the quality of our wines. He had his own style, which was the style that we all know. Uh, so most of the, the Bordeaux producer, a lot of Bordeaux producers were doing wines to please Robert Parker. Mm -hmm. So during the first years in my career, until uh, the late, uh, I see, we, we tended to change recently the style of the wine. Uh, I, I lived with the style of the Parker, what Parker was driving, driven. Today, Parker is not there anymore. And we knew that we were talking about it at the beginning of the show about Napa wine. We have the same thing in Bordeaux. Uh, our wine needs to be much more uh, drinkable, much more uh, uh, on the terroir, much more on the fruits. And really, today, I think we, uh, we, we, we have a change on the style of the wine that we have in Bordeaux, really. Yeah. Is it because the consumer has changed? Yes, I think so. I think the consumer... You know, you you always had this experience of wine, you, what we call the vin soif, and mm -hmm. the, that you bring, you buy at the restaurant, you bring your two, you bring the bottle, and you say, okay, bring me another one. And you have uh, this wine that you buy at the restaurant, you bring two glasses, and you say, oh, I'm okay. And it's exactly <laughs> that. And I think the 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 the, the, consum the, the, the consumption was. Uh, they were like fed up about the, the, the over-extracted, rich, jammy uh, wine, and they want to enjoy and have pleasure. And one bottle, call the next one. Okay, digestible. You can exactly. <laughs> I got a very good description about that. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you see the? The, f the future in, in terms of, because there are many changes taking place. There's, you know, there's uh, climate change, consumer have changed. The way the business is being done seems to change as well, because when you look at consolidation that are taking place, this may have an impact on the industry as well in terms of positioning, et cetera. How, how do you see the future for Chateau Palmer, for your work as a negociant, and the things that you have to navigate that are, you know, the most complicated ones. Hello. There are a few. And that's the beauty of life is to have challenge. Um, I think the challenge uh, we uh, face the fir fir at first uh, now is the global warming. We see it 
in the vineyard. We see it in Bordeaux. Uh, so far, the global warming has been good for Bordeaux because we never uh, produce so many uh, great vintages since uh, the global warming started. So, so far, global warming is not that bad for Bordeaux. Now, we don't know where the global warming is going to stop. And we know that some of the grapes are going to suffer more than others. So mm -hmm. there is a big challenge about adapting ourselves to this global warming. Uh, after, uh, we uh, also have, uh, in terms of distribution, uh, we have a worldwide consumption about our wines, which was not the case uh, 50 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. We had the European market, uh, the Asian market was not existing or very little, and the American market was just starting. So we have to uh, deal with all these uh, consumers worldwide who have different taste, different uh, approach about our wines, and uh, we as a producer, not only as a sole producer, but globally in, in Bordeaux, to answer to all their questions and try to bring them uh, to Bordeaux. Uh, so that's a, that's a big challenge and, uh, and keep this good distribution about the Bordeaux wine worldwide that uh, we managed since, I mean, centuries and uh, bring it to the, to the next generation. And uh, I think we have a marvelous thing is uh, to bring amazing wine uh, through the Place de Bordeaux uh, distributed by the Place de Bordeaux and bringing the best wine of the world uh, through the Place de Bordeaux is something marvelous and that's a big challenge for the, the next uh, 20 years in Bordeaux. Okay, so basically even the other regions, they're, they're not seen as competitors, but they're seen as complementary to what you're offering because you're kind of diversifying your portfolio at the end of the day of you know of that you in Bordeaux sell. you know that in Bordeaux the neighbor is not a competitor it's a, it's a, it's a confrère it's a colleague okay so we have um, and it's the beauty of Bordeaux is uh, we all do the same thing and we need to set our wines but we saw that united we are stronger than on our own and i think it's exactly it. so you can take it in Bordeaux but you can take it worldwide it's united we are stronger than the load and the great wine from the world, United, are going to be stronger than alone. Before we, we, unfortunately, we're getting close to the end of, of the show, but before we go to the pivot questionnaire, there's that question. What is, for you, so fascinating about wine? Because like Philippe de Lursalus, who's a very good friend of yours, and many other people which are, you know, several generations down from the people that were you know, starting the wineries basically before them, they tend to go back to it for, in one way, shape, or form. What is so attractive about this world of wine? First, you have to know that uh, I've never been pushed to be in the, 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 the family businesses. Uh, my father never told me, you have to come and work in the wine industry, pushed me to work in various industries, but never in the wine. Uh, I don't know if that was uh, to get a larger view uh, in my uh, mind or because working in a family business can be tough from time to time. Mm -hmm. uh, 
but wine is a marvelous uh, thing because it's about sharing, it's about uh, working uh, on hers uh, and about uh, meeting all the most amazing people from around the world. As soon as you travel and you sell great wine, you meet the nicest people, the most interesting people around the world. And that's, there are probably other businesses that are like this, but wine, and it's always, always bring joy. You, you don't have sad people in the wine industry and in the wine, wine consumption. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't agree more. <laughs> the more you drink, the more happy you are. <laughs> yeah, no, that, it, it is that too. It is that too. It's, 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 that, this is something that has been fascinating because I think all, all, all the guests that were, you know, as I said, further generations down came back one way, shape, or form without being pushed, or, uh, or sometimes they had to, but very often there is that draw that is that is always present mm. and I, and i think probably also the work with nature with with soil with with being out there and it's it's a very humbling and and fulfilling type of, wait, wait. of work it's, be it's beautiful and we are very proud we are very uh uh respectful about what uh, the previous generation did i've been i've been fortunate to have my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather have done such a tremendous job uh, for years and years uh, in all these estates and uh, in the wine industry and uh, dedicated to the greatest wine of, the, of Bordeaux. That's uh, amazing. You're doing wonderful. <laughs> Please keep on. Let's, hope. Let's continue. On. Yeah. So as I said, unfortunately, we're getting close to the end. But before we end, as usual, the pivot questionnaire kind of slightly changed from the original version. Uh, so are you ready? So it's the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, so the first question, what is your favorite word? I would say amazing. What's your least favorite word? Impossible. What's your favorite virtue? Honesty. What's your favorite quality in a man? Richness. What's a favorite quality in a woman? Simplicity. What wine would you use to describe yourself? That's a very good question. I can't take my wine, so as you say, you, you, can, I, you can take whatever you want. Whatever. A classic vintage of a Medoc wine, of a Medoc estate. Okay. What's your favorite smell or aroma? Smell is a. Uh, I love lavender in uh, lavender. Oh yeah, beautiful! Big fields of lavender in Provence. It, it reminds me uh, uh, my uh, holidays, my uh, uh, when I was a kid. And it reminds me a lot of things lavender. It's, it's crazy that smells and music brings back those memories so right. strongly. Yeah. The smell of lavender in the house when I was a kid, in my grandparents' house. Beautiful. To completely change. What's your favorite curse word, but in any language? Putain. 
This is a classic. This is a classic. What sound or noise do you love? My kids laugh. What sound or noise do you hate? The finger on the board, you know, from the teacher. Oh, okay. Oh. Yes, yes. What plant or animal would you like to be reincarnated in? I think an oak tree. To make good barrels. <laughs> <laughs> the link is always there. Yeah, no, no. Oak tree, because it's a beautiful uh, tree. Yeah, it is. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You've done a good job. Ferdinand Mailerbes, thank you so much. Merci beaucoup, So this concludes the Wine Hour for today. Thank you for listening. Next show is end of September for the start of season three. Until then, have a wonderful summer. Take care of yourself. Drink in moderation. Be well and safe. Faith always. Goodbye. <laughs>